Well, thank you uh, so much for being here, for being the church, and for bringing it into this room today. Um, if you're not a regular here at Harvest, thank you so much. Welcome you. In the name of the Lord, I'm DL, one of the many shepherds here at Harvest. Uh, it's our joy and our privilege to have you with us today. Um, this is the point in time in our worship service where typically we would have uh, someone come up and testify to the good work of God in their lives, uh, ways that... Uh, we, as we've sung, we testify to the reality that age to age and hour by hour, uh, lives are being changed. It's the work of the power of the cross. But today we're not going to have that. We have a guest speaker. We're going to give him all the time to do that. But as a way of us being reminded of what testimonies do for us, can you turn to somebody and say, God is alive? Can you say that? God is alive. And look to someone else and say, God is working. And then turn to someone else and say, God is here. All right. uh, this morning, we're going to hear the word of God from uh, Pastor Don Lee. As I, uh, as I mentioned in my prayer, we've been having a, a weekend, Friday night and Saturday night, uh, ended last night, where we welcomed uh, a church, um, Asian American church from Gainesville, Florida, Centerpoint Christian Fellowship. I think a smattering of them are still here with us this morning. Uh, thank you so much for being here. It was a, a great time of worship. It was geared towards uh, college folks and young adults and uh, just finding the unity in the Lord across um, life stages and spectrums and cities in which we live and uh, such a blessing, sweet time, just in so many different ways, learning about uh, the Lord, obviously, and in his word, worshiping together, praying together, and then hearing about some really practical issues, as well as just having a lot of fun eating together, playing games, and uh, we really thank God. When I sing, uh, God, you're so good. Uh, when we sing that, the song should always be new to us and always be fresh, but uh, with that weekend in mind, um, that song was uh, really uh, encouraging and a blessing and significant to me and to many of us as we sang this morning. But today we're going to hear, as we continue in this series on the final week of Jesus, going to talk about what happened on the Wednesday, the last Wednesday of Jesus' life. Pastor Don Lee is going to preach the word of God to us. He is married to his wife, Diana, who's also in ministry, the children's ministry director at the church in which they serve. Uh, four of their children are in that ministry. Uh, that's, they've got four children. Uh, three times they got pregnant. The fourth child came as a surprise. It was a, a pair of twins, a set of twins. And so uh, unexpected blessing, <laughs> I think, uh, I would imagine so. But he considered it not so much to be a blessing uh, yet, but uh, at some point, I'm sure he will. He's an English ministry pastor at a, uh, just a thriving church in, uh, near the Rutgers, New Jersey area. Uh, it's called Praise Presbyterian Church, the English congregation there. Um, he's doing a lot of really great work. He was um, studied at Cornell University, so he's a nerd. And then he was going to uh, become more of a nerd when he went to Columbia Dental School to become a dentist. He's going to be a rich, rich nerd. But then God called him out of ministry, I'm sorry, out of dental work and to become a minister of the Word of God and using his brain and his gifts and all of that stuff, ministering the Word of God and seeing uh, many people come to life in the name of Jesus. Uh, we do a lot of ministry partnership together as we serve the Lord through our denomination and, and trying to see churches uh, renewed, revitalized, and, and really come to see, uh, stand on the foundation of Scripture and the Gospel. So uh, he's going to preach the Word of God to us. Let's get Give a warm welcome, Pastor Don Lee. And, and with that kind of welcome, wow, geez. Um, you know, the, um, you know, talk show hosts, uh, I always say that, you know, DL would have been a great talk show host. The way he, like, lifts people up and the energy and all this stuff, wow, it's, it's amazing. Um, uh, I am... Um, 
blessed to be here. Um, I don't know how you guys, why you would come to church. It's so nice outside. Um, in, 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 New, you know, in New Jersey, you know, we come to church to get out of the bad weather. You guys leave the good weather to come inside this environment. But, but um, the, one thing I've been noticing a lot is that, um, there, you know, let me just say this. You guys know this. To me, I'm an outside observer. There is a culture in this church that is so right. Um, you know, in, in, in the Northeast, it's really not like that. It's, it's a little difficult to minister there. People are, um, it kind of size you up. I've been telling people all the time, you know, when, when you come to Harvest, people look at you and they smile and they hug you and they say, how was your day? You know, when you go to New Jersey, when, when you go to the doors, they look at your head, they look at your shoes, they look at what you're wearing. You know, this is, this is, they just size you up like this, right? And they kind of judge you right away. And so it's a little, a little bit more difficult in New Jersey, um, and we do things a little bit differently. But, um, you know, I don't know what it is. I, I don't know if it's Disney. I don't know what it is. But <laughs> you, guys, you guys are so loving. And, and, it is, and, and I just want to tell you that this culture is not in all the churches. And you guys are so blessed to be here. And I'm so honored that, that we are here as well. Um, I'm not sure if, if the picture of my family, oh, maybe it's not, oh, I don't know if I exit out of the program, but um, uh, maybe they could put up a picture of my family, and so there they are. Um, this is, um, you know, Karis right here, she's, she's my oldest, she's my princess, she's, um, she's turning eight soon um, in a month. Um, she's, she's a sweetheart, she, she's so mature, she's really helping with the family, and I know right now, even as they're in service, she's taking care of the twins right now. Um, this is Chloe, um, she's, she's my middle child, and uh, all the middle child tendencies are starting to come out now, like really strong. She's, um, you know, she wishes she was older like her sister, and she doesn't want to play with the little twins because they're babies, so she thinks she's an older girl, and she does things that kind of, you know, kind of wants to grab attention, but it's, she's so cute. She's like, I think at, at the moment, she's my favorite. I'm not supposed to say that, but, you know, um, you know, you know I love her more um, than other people right now. <clears throat> This is my um, son. This is my wife's pride and joy. Um, you know, for me, I actually prayed for daughters only. Um, so, so to me, I, I tell people all the time, you know, I, you know um, to me that God gave me the third child and Satan gave me the fourth. I think that Satan gave me <laughs> the boy. I don't know. But, but, um, but, but, but the one thing in life is that, you know, at, when, I, when, I, when he grows up, you know, one thing in my prayer is that he will be proud of me as a father. And this is my daughter, Kara. Um, she is so independent. Um, she runs around. She has so much energy. And um, last night, my wife lost her and, you know, in the church. She apparently ran outside. I was playing the playground all by herself. So for an hour, we couldn't find her. And that's, that's why, you know, I, I hope to come to love twins eventually. It's just so hard to follow them. Um, I've been here since Friday. Um, Pastor Dio asked me to preach, and, I'm, and I'm, it, it's been awesome. Um, the people are so awesome in this place. Um, I love the community. I love what's happening in Orlando. I'll be back in May, and I really want to hear testimonies, more testimonies of the things that you guys have been doing in this um, beautiful, beautiful city of Orlando. Um, what I do in New Jersey, um, maybe you guys don't do it here in Orlando, but what I do is that when it comes to the reading of God's Word, you know, I have, have, I have the congregation stand. If you're able to, um, you know, this is just for us to, just to honor, just to know that when it comes to the Word of God, you know, you guys can sit and rest and whatnot, even sleep, you know, when it comes to the message. But when it comes to the Word of God, you know, at least that we can focus and just read the words together. That, that's, that's all I ask. So if you're able to stand, please do so. Um, and, and so the scripture today um, you know, will be, uh, we'll be from Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. Um, and I'm going to have the people in the back just, you know, kind of go through the slides with me as I read. If you don't have your Bibles, it's okay. I provided the words up there in, in, in the Sky Bible. I'll be reading from the ESV version. So it's Luke 7, verse 36 through 50. And, and this is the word of God. Now one of the Pharisees asked 
him to eat with, oh, I'll just read verse, I'm sorry. Um, ask him to eat with him. Um, please read in your hearts. And, um, and Jesus, he went into the Pharisee's house, and Jesus reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, um, who was a sinner, uh, when she learned that Jesus, he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought this alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answered, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they, they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for me canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, and was with his back toward Simon, he was speaking to Simon. He said, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not know my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he was forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who are at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God. You may be seated, please. <clears throat> I just want to say that I'm sorry if my voice is um, shot. This is my fourth sermon. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be here today. Um, to be honest, you know, DL, Pastor DL, when he first told me, um, he came in just to preach just, just a young adult version of this weekend. And I wanted to listen to him on Sunday. You guys are so blessed to have him preach every single week. Um, and, so, and so, you know, I bought the plane ticket. And then after I bought it, he kind of reeled me and said, can you preach on Sunday as well? So, so I couldn't even back out, right? But, but honestly, it's my honor to be with you here today. Um, he asked me to preach about Wednesday. I know you guys are going through the series of, 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 the, of, the, Lent, of the Passion Week. And he says, um, you know, to preach on Wednesday. And I, and I thought about this a lot, you know, Wednesday, right? For you guys who are working, right? You know, we have this word for Wednesday, right? In the work verse, we call it hump day, right? Hump day. So, so this is the hump day message, you know. Hump day is, is, is a period of time when it's, it's at least far enough, right, from the Monday and Tuesday, but yet it's not close enough to the weekend, right? It's still a little far away from Friday. And so, so you can't really make the weekend plan yet because you're still in the middle of the work week, right? This is Wednesday. Wednesday is kind of the bridge, right? The bridge to kind of, um, you know, be, you know it, that kind of ties together the beginning of the week and, and also to the end of the week. Now, I'm, I'm grateful about this passage because to me, this message is all about worship, right? I'm, I'm preaching because this is about worship, because worship, right? And, and, and the theme about Wednesday and the theme about this thing is that, you know, and I know Pastor Dilly, when he talked on Monday, he talked about when Jesus was flipping tables at the temple, right? He was driven by the passions and he saw the worship of God being disrupted, right? And, and, and yesterday, you know, he, um, Jesus, you know, oh, not yesterday, last week, Jesus, um, Dio, sorry, not Jesus, but Pastor Dio was talking about, um, about this woman who was, who was giving her all, her heart to, um, you know, to the temple and, and she was, he was 
was seeing her worship, you know, as, as, as she was giving this away. And, 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 as this, and now it leads to this message. This message is the message that's going to tie Jesus flipping the tables at the temple and, and, and for him to being betrayed and crucified. And Jesus being God, he knows that this day is coming. And what gets him from the cleansing of the temple, the flipping of the tables, now to knowing that he's going to be crucified, is that, is, is that this hump day message, right, this Wednesday, is that this message is all about worship. And so if you're practicing Lent right now, and I know some of you guys are, and, and you're getting to the point where, oh, you know, that you've been, you know, maybe you've given up bread, right? And every time you see a bread or small bread, you're starting to get hungry a little bit. Or maybe you've given up social media, and, and, and you're kind of getting the itch to just check your Facebook message just once more. Uh, whatever it may is, you know, I hope that what fills you then, you know, kind of push you. It's not a resolve, a more resolve to just defeat these temptations that come in, but I hope that you fill these emptiness, these longings in your heart, you know, to, to fall down in this Lenten season. I hope you fill it with worship instead. I hope that be, that's the drive that pushes you, you know, through the very end. Um, let me tell you a story. Um, in, the, in the December, um, this, this past December 2018, I, I took a small team in my, in my ministry to South Africa. It was the first time that we went. Um, it's, it's, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful there. It was a vision casting trip, so I needed to take a small group rather than a larger group. Um, but one of the memories that, that I, I, I experienced, so we did a lot there. We, we did healing ministries, door-to-door ministries, evangelism, orphan ministry, children, adults, all these things. But out of all the things that we experienced um, that for, the, for the 15 days that we were there, the one thing that was always ingrained to me was how the people of South Africa worshipped there. Now, if you ever go into a third world country, um, you know, anywhere, any place that, that really embraces Jesus, right, as, as their Savior and the Lord, um, what you'll find is that worship, right, worship is not something that, 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 that they've designed to kind of fit in a set period of a, of a worship block schedule. That, that worship is what we do before a sermon. Worship is what we do after the announcements. Um, for them, worship is not the predecessor of a sermon, as we do in so many of these Western churches. But in these countries, worship is the main event. People come to worship. They come to clap and to joy and to, and to release whatever they've been bringing that throughout the whole week. Right? This is what they do. Um, in fact, for a lot of these you know, churches, um, the sermon is the closer for the worship. Right? Worship is the main event. And having been to so many of these mission trips all over these years, right, in these past like, 15, 20 years of my life, I know that there is something that we have lost in this Western world. Maybe there is something that we have lost um, that, that I think going to missions, if you have never gone to missions, if you've never experienced other people worshiping our same God across the seas or anywhere else, I think that this should drive you, this reason alone should drive you to maybe sign up next year or this year or whatever it may be so that you would see how other people across the world worship our God, right? This may, may be one of the reasons. Do you have a high view of worship? It may be a, a very obvious question. Of course I do, Pastor Don. I'm here. I love God, you know, all these things. But I want you to know that next to prayer in the Bible, next to prayer, worship is actually the second most commanded dis, uh, spiritual discipline that God speaks of, his, you know, tells his people. And, and, and do you know what that means, right? To you, it may mean something else. But to me, that says to me as, as a worshiper of God, it must mean that I'm terrible at it. Why? Because no one tells me to do something twice, three, four, five times. There's something that I'm good at. 
So for example, you know, my, my, my wife cooks the, the, the dinner at home, and I do the dishes. Not because I have to, but I love doing the dishes. There's something therapeutic and even spiritual when I do dishes, and knowing that, you know, that, that, that these, dirty, uh, these dirty plates will be cleaned by the, by the water of the faucet, right? I just make some spiritual reference to it. But um, I like doing the dishes. So my wife will never say to me twice, honey, can you do the dishes? Honey, can you do the dishes? Right? Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah, invite me over, cook me a good meal, I will do all the dishes. But if my heart is not moved on anything, if I do something begrudgingly, if I do something that you know, I just don't want to do it and I kind of half-hearted do it, then over and over and over again, either my wife, my children, my pastor, whoever it may be, will tell me to do this, remind me constantly until that it is done or at least done correctly. And for God to constantly, you know, all through the Bible, he's always telling us to pray. But for him to tell us as well that you need to worship. This is how you worship. This is how my people worship me. When he tells us constantly in the Bible that this is how we are to worship, he's not saying this as this worship-starved being who, who demands us, you know, grovel at my feet, worship me 24-7. This is not the heart of God. But rather, it's really saying something about us and about our hearts. And maybe how, how when we come to God that maybe we don't know how to worship. Let's be honest and let's be humble to say that maybe we don't know how to accurately and, and just, you know, honestly and humbly worship our God. You know, I would say theologically, um, at least this is what I believe, right? I would say that I'm very conservative, um, though my definition, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why, of conservative may not be the same as yours, but, but I've noticed something, and this is something that I've really been noticing in the churches recently. Um, oops, I'm going off. Um, so, so even next slide. Um, I've been noticing something in the churches, and, and, and the picture that's going to go up, um, oh, actually, next slide. Um, the next slide. And, and uh, actually, this is a youth revival retreat. Right? And, 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 and if I ask you, what are they doing here today? What are those students doing? If you had said they're watching a TV show, they're watching a movie, that's what it looks like. But this is in the middle of a worship service. And I could not tell for the life of me that this was a retreat. See, from the early years of my ministry, what I noticed was that when I first came in, so, so I started my ministry with like 15 people, um, it was completely dead. There was no clapping. There was no movement of the spirit happening around. Ask any of our early church members, right? And I was always like the silly guy in the front row of the seats. I was jumping and clapping. I was praising with all my heart. And, and, you, and I promise you, they would tell you that, man, this guy is weird, right? Where did this pastor come from? Why? You know, and, and there was a culture, at least in my church, where worship wasn't primary, where worship wasn't joyful. And I was doing this for so many years um, until it started to slowly started changing. And I would think to myself, right, and I really thought about it in the earliest of my ministry, when did this type of worship, where, where people just kind of stare at the screen, right, as if this is what God commanded us to do, this is how God wanted to be worshipped, when did this become the norm of, of, of our worship service? I'm not saying this, right, but I'm saying in a lot of places I've seen, how did this become the norm? Right? To me, this is, um, to me, this is not conservative worship. This is what I would call radical worship. You know, and, 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 and I don't think it's, it's, it's really, you know, biblical of, of our worship. I don't think it's working. Next slide. Um, so, so I think what, what's happening a lot is that a lot of us, when we come to worship, right, um, you know, we come to God with this, with this serious face. Oh, Lord. I'm so joyful today. You know, I mean, we have this really kind of serious face that, that, that whatever we show on the inner of our hearts kind of belies what's happening on the outside. 
Now, I'll talk about this, you know, eventually during the sermon, but worship has changed a lot in the past couple hundred years, right? In decades, in the past couple hundred years. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a traditional Jewish worship, right? I've seen these worships. I've been a part of these. Man, Jewish people, they know how to worship. Like, there is so much passion. They're, they're running around. They, they're linking arms, and they're clapping, and there's, there's so much revival in, other, in every single Jewish worship. Why? Because they know that God has a prescribed set of rules of how we are to come to him that there's a heart and there's a way and a posture and all these things that God says this is right when it comes to worship. But somehow in our modern day, right, in a modern day quest for knowledge and enlightenment and, 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 and to, to, be, to, to think and to be contemplative during our worship, a lot of our churches have really dumbed, uh, dulled down, you know, when it comes to the, the worship time. And worship time has, has become really contemplated, very serious, right? When, we, when the song says clap for joy, right, we just, we look at it for just face value. You know, even growing up, you know, and, and this is just my testimony, even growing up, whenever people clap their hands, I had older people just stare me down as if I was doing something wrong, as if God wasn't meant to be clapped. And, 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 and I was told that, you know, these, these, these charismatics, man, they're bringing down the church. You know, they're, they're mocking God by their shouting and jumping and all this type and this frivolity. Um, and, and so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to try to combat this today. I'm going to ask you guys, right, I mean, just humbly just listen to me, right? I'm not saying you need to change or do anything right now, but let me give you what I see in this passage. And maybe that this may drive a, a different type of heart that maybe God um, really is honored by as well. That, that whatever heart that you come today, God loves it. But maybe I'm going to offer you a little bit different stance and what, what, what I think as well. So my hope is to show you that I think God loves it when you clap, that when you jump, when you shout, and all these things, when you come to him, like even as a child, that this pure joy type of worship is what he seeks. Because why? Worship is the sum of all of life. Everything that we do is a worship unto God. Why not do it joyfully? Because he is our God. Now, uh, before I begin today, you know, um, let me see the click of words. Uh, I'm going to try to um, um, show you a picture of what's happening today. Now, first in our story, we have this man named Simon, and Simon is a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees are, you probably know, they're, they're these religious elite people. They're the people that were kind of top of the ladder, people in whom the Jews kind of looked up to as those who interpreted God's law and, and, and gave them, this is how you're supposed to worship God. He's also a member of the cultural elite. So, I mean, he was wealthy, he was influential, he was someone that, that the people probably in the town knew. But at the same time, because he was an elite, he, 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 you know, a lot of people followed him, they loved him, and, and they went to his house and all these different things. Now, when Simon, he, when he opens the door to Jesus Christ, when he invites Jesus into his house, um, it's not only Jesus he's inviting. Because he's a cultural lead, he's inviting basically all the movers and the shakers and the influencers of the town to kind of sit at the table and to enjoy this meal. And, and so as they lie down on the couch with their feet away and their, and their heads kind of you know, leaning towards and asking questions and you know, finding, uh, talking about God and all these things and sandals off, this is what the image is like. Now, this is, um, and, and the public wanted to, that anyone from the outside can kind of come along and kind of see and just listen to what these um, figures are saying, like this woman. Now, she wasn't noticed at first. You know why? I mean, why would these cultural elites, you know, notice a person like her? Women often serve these meals, and you could see, you know, someone in the background. So, so to them, she was another one of the hired help. Um, she was no one important. But in our passage, what, is, you know, what, is, what does it say about her? I mean, what does Luke say? That she is a woman of the city, and he says that she is a sinner. Now, I don't need to pull out my Greek commentaries to tell you what that word means, um, because 
I think you know the implications, right? It's what she does that speaks volume of who she is. See, Joel Green says this when, when, when he talks about her. He says, the inviting of her hair, the wiping of Jesus' feet with him, it's like a woman that goes up to a formal event and just takes off her shirt and she's topless, right? This is kind of what's happening. And as much as we want to do as Christians, as God lovers and followers, as much as we want to protect and, and encourage this devotion that what she's doing before Jesus, we can't deny who this person really is. She's a prostitute. And she's about to massage and, and let down her hair and, and, and cover the feet of probably the most important single Jewish male at the history of the time and of all the world. Now, at first glance, what she's doing is that she's coming to put ointment on his feet. Why? Because her desire was that, was that, that she would fragrance you know, the feet of the Savior, the Messiah of the world, and to offer something to this Jesus. But if you look at the story and how the story moves on, something happens to her before she's able to get to the perfume. Right? She brings this alabaster flask of ointment, and, and, and as she's doing so, she wants to do something. And, and she's at the feet of Jesus Christ, and, and she has it, and maybe her hand is trembling, but, but whatever it is, everything that she's wanting to do, for some reason she couldn't. Because why? Because we see in the next verses that she begins to weep. I mean, she, she had this all planned out. She knew the exact date. She knew the exact place where Jesus was going to be. And here he was. He was right there, right in front of her. Mind you, this wasn't part of the plan. She didn't want to weep. She didn't want to cry in front of Jesus. She didn't want to be like this little schoolgirl, you know, who was crying because, you know, her boyfriend dumped her, right? She, right? But she didn't want to be like this in front of the religious elite, right? This is, this is the God-man Jesus Christ. Now, Perhaps she came there because maybe, and she was there when Matthew, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, when Jesus was preaching to the crowds, come to me, all those who are labor and heavy burden. Maybe she heard that message. You know, she was someone that always alerted men to her. But this was the first man that told her to come to him, and she did. You see, this man, Jesus, when he looked at her, when, when, when he looked at her eyes, he didn't notice her hair. He didn't notice her body, but he saw deeper. He didn't notice the shape of her body and what she was wearing, but she noticed that there was a hole in her heart, and it made sense. Because being with so many men in her life, her heart was left hardened and numb over these years. But in that day, maybe these words melted her and, and he, because he spoke of this father, this father's love, a love that was so pure that he can wash away all the deepest sins. And not just anyone's sins, not just that person's sins, but her sins alone. And as you see, the appropriate and the right thing to do when you come face to face in front of a man who says this is to bow down and to in the, in, 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 on your face on your knees before someone who offers this kind of love and this kind of grace. Now, at this point, everyone in the public, you know, they see, they turn around, and they're looking at this woman, uh, and, and they see her crying. And instead of escaping away in embarrassment, wiping away her face and her tears, she, she does something strange. She kneels down. She slowly undoes her braided hair. Maybe She's angry, angry that the host couldn't even provide a servant, right? The most basic of all necessities for a guest to wash the feet of Jesus. And what we see in the Greek is that she started to not just weep, but brecane. 
right? It's this word that means to rain. She was literally raining down tears. She didn't have this bowl of water before. And so Martin Luther, when he, when, when, when he analyzed his test, he says what came out of her was the water in her heart. Heart water started to come out. And it was enough heart water to wash the feet of Jesus. And her hair, this hair that she used to seduce men, now she takes it off to serve this man. Kisses that were once meant, that, that was once um, sold for, for dollars and bills, all these things. Now she starts to give it freely away to Jesus Christ. Oh, and that word that you see, the word kiss, that's actually the same word, right? That the, that the, the same writer, Luke, that he writes later in the prodigal son, that, that when the father sees his son far away, he starts running to his son, and he grabs him, and he starts kissing him on the neck, on the face, and the cheek, and he starts embracing him, right? This is the same word that's being used here, and, and what we can deduce in this passage is that she wasn't just kissing Jesus on the lips, but she was clinging the feet and in a tight embrace. She was hugging and, and kissing and weeping. Her hair was all over the ground. And she vowed in her heart never to show this kind of intimacy to another man other than Jesus Christ. And after all of this, finally, she then does the perfume on his feet. You see, normally you would put the perfume on someone's head. This is what it was practically normal at the time. But, and that's what it's for. But she couldn't wait any longer. So she breaks it at his feet. You see, that's the story, right? This is the story that you guys all know. This is the story that stilled the entire audience. This is the story that maybe is still in your heart right now. And that's the story that we are all drawn to today. But I want to tell you, the story isn't just about this woman at the feet of Jesus. There's another character that we often overlook. There's another man in the story that also wanted to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and his name was Simon. And we always forget how strongly the text suggests that, that Simon really wanted to get to know this Jesus character as well. Because a lot of times we say, oh, he's a Pharisee, and Pharisees were enemies of Jesus, that, that, that we forget that it was him that invited Jesus to the dinner party. Now, Simon didn't invite Jesus to necessarily attack him, necessarily as an enemy. Because why? Because he, he cooked this meal for Jesus Christ. He's welcoming his hand. He's extending his hand for this meal, a meal that would have taken hours and hours to prepare in advance. And so this meal was very costly to Simon. Why? Not only financially, because you know, he would have probably killed a large animal to feed the, everyone that was there, but also it would have been costly to him socially, because all of his Pharisee friends, those who were enemies of Jesus Christ, they would have started looking at this man saying, what are you doing? Why are you doing this for Jesus? We should be attacking him, not welcoming him into our, uh, into our houses. And so it's Simon. Simon, just as much as this woman who wants to have a relationship with Jesus, you see, if the story had zoomed in, not on Simon, but on a different Pharisee, then, yeah, I get it, right? Jesus is contrasting this, this woman who's crying and wants to, you know, worship Jesus compared to a Pharisee who's angry and evil and just wants Jesus dead. I get it. A lot of times in Jesus' interactions, there's a good person and there's a bad person, right? There's, there's someone who wants Jesus and someone who doesn't want Jesus, but not here. In this story, there are two people who are seeking Jesus, at least outwardly. But at the end of the story, Jesus praises one of the two, and he sends the other person away, meaning that there is a proper way to worship, church. There is a proper way to worship our God. That outwardly, although you can do everything that satisfies what it looks like to worship God, 
that inwardly you may be far in spirit. Worship is a design from God's heart. He tells us this is how you are to worship. Don't just come to me and how you want to worship. I'm going to show you what worship looks like. Many times in our churches, we have both Simon worshipers and we have you know, women worshipers as well. And I'm not saying both people want Jesus. But let me just offer to you today that there is a type of worship that Jesus you know, enjoys, likes, wants, he desires. Who is Simon? Let's talk about the worships. Who is Simon? Simon is an academic, right? I and mean, we know this about all Pharisees. He's heady. He loves Bible study. He, he loves learning. He loves knowledge. He loves quizzes and all these type of things. Now, it may not be presumptuous. They're too presumptuous to assume that some of you guys are kind of like that too. You guys love studying the Word. You will spend hours reading the Bible. You love quizzing people, you know, telling Pastor Dio, hey, Pastor Dio, did you know what this verse says? I learned about this, you know, in this Bible study. And, you know, it, you may be one of those type of people, Right? His approach to Jesus is very rational. It's a thinking. He, he, he worships. Um, his worship sense is more of a studying type of sense. It's kind of more impersonal. It's it, it kind of a little more of a distance. He questions. He analyzes. He, he tries to put situations all together, right? And, and, and this is what he does. And so what we see, and how do we know this, is that when it comes to this woman, um, the first thing that he says, right, the first thing that's said about this man is that he's talking to himself. He's reasoning out what this woman is doing. What is she doing? Right? He's thinking about this whole situation. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who this one woman is, right? what sort of woman is, and who is touching him. Right? He's thinking in his head, not saying out loud. He's thinking him. And this is exactly what he's trying to think right? Um, in that next verse that we saw. Right? If this man is divine, if Jesus is who he claims to be, and he says that he's divine, and he says that he's holy, then number one, he can't be divine because why? He doesn't know that this is a prostitute. But number two, if he does know that this is a prostitute, then why is he letting her touch his feet? It was impure. It was something that men, grown-up men, didn't allow these type of women to do. So he's, anal he's an analyzer. He thinks about all these different things. Now, how does Jesus respond to him, right? As, as he's thinking in this thought, and it says, what does Jesus do? What do you do to thinkers, right? Well, how do you respond to people who are intellectual and try to think, right? What does Jesus do? He gives them a parable. He says, you know, hey, Simon, you like to think, right? Think about this story. And he gives them a parable to kind of munch on and to kind of bite on. Um, see, um, I think there's nothing wrong with working things out, to be honest. I, I consider myself a thinker. I think um, Pastor DL, he exposed me. Yeah, I'm a nerd, right? Um, I try to hide that from other people. But yeah, I, I, I'm a nerd. I love studying. I love reading the Bible. I love, I, I love people like Simon to surround myself with. But this is my point about Simon. That's all he's doing. All he's doing is studying. He's withdrawn, and he's detached, and he's impersonal. But when it comes to this woman, right, this woman, she's immediately, she immediately gets personal. She's weeping. She's on her knees. In fact, there's not one facet of her body that's not touching Jesus. And it's at this point in the story where Jesus, he turns to Simon, verse 44, and says, do you see this woman? She's weeping over me. She's hugging. She's kissing me. She's anointing my feet with oil. She didn't just invite me to a dinner. She invited me into her heart. And, 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 and I can imagine Simon. Simon's thinking, wait a minute, Jesus. You want me to weep over you? You want me to touch you? You want me to hug you? You want me to kiss you and anoint your feet? Is this what you really want me to do, all of these things? And Jesus says in her story, he says, yes. Yes, this is what I want. 
You see, there are two types of worships that, that I've been seeing in, in, in the modern-day church, right, in the Western world. We have Simon worshipers who are very impersonal. They're, they're more detached. They're more thinking when it comes to God, right? They, and we would, some people would say maybe they're passionate, right? They don't show a lot of emotions. But the other type of worship is what this woman does, right? She's very personal. She's very passionate. Her whole body is on Jesus Christ. Her whole life is engaged in this person that's in front of her. And what Jesus Christ is after in our story and we're trying to break through is that he wants to break through the Simon worshipers today. He wants to to show the Simon worshipers, yes, you can learn about me, you can know about me, and you can study me. But yet, when it comes to my worship, let me add this part to your life so that you may have the fullness of who I am. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he looks upon this passage and he's commentating, he says this, he says, not for one moment, and he's talking about Simon the Pharisee, not for one moment does Simon the Pharisee give the impression that this meeting is the most vital, the most momentum occasion in his life, that here and now he may obtain something which will make an eternal difference to him, right? In front of Simon is the second person of the Trinity, the one who existed for eternity past and will exist for eternity future. This is God in the flesh. This is what the, the doctor is saying. Before something, he doesn't understand who is in front of him. No, there is no thrill, no excitement. There's no tension. He is calm and he is detached. Simon thinks that his way of pursuing Jesus is enough. As long as he understands about the cross, as long as he understands that Jesus died for him, as long as he understands what verses to recite when, when he sat and all these things, that that's just good enough. But Jesus says, no, I want the passion. I want the tears. I want nothing less than what this woman is giving to me now. That is worship. You know, let's be honest, church. Let's be honest, right? There are things that you guys are more passionate, there are things in your life that, that you are passionate about that are far less than Jesus Christ. Let's be honest today. Some of you guys are so passionate about, you know, March Madness that, that you guys will clear your schedules, you know, and, and uh, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to point out Pastor D.L., that he may cancel one of the meetings because you would be in, you know, the semifinals, right? I'm just saying, but, but we are passionate. We are passionate about far lesser things in our lives. Tell me not, church. We are passionate about um, um, internet stars. We, we follow certain celebrities, right? Certain movies that are coming out, you know? There's so much rage about, you know, um, the, the new Avengers Endgame, all these fan theories, right? We're so passionate about lesser things in life, about what our children are going to wear to church today, right? Is that really that important? And yet, when it comes to all these things, as much as Jesus wants your intellectual um, inquiries, your deep Bible studies, your theological debate and knowledge, right? Worship is more than that. Because three chapters alone, and this chapter has, this one verse has really changed my life when it comes to worship, is that Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God. And he tells us how. He doesn't just end there. He gives us a way to do it. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with your strength, oh, sorry, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, right? He tells us how to do it. 
He tells it exactly what it is. And, 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 and let me say this, right? But this is, this is what the pastor is saying. He's saying if at any point your heart is not harmonized with your body when it comes to worship, when your soul is not in, in, in conjunction with your, with your mind and thinking, right? If you're just before a worship screen and just reading the words, right, and you're not, your mind is not racing at what, what the lyrics are really saying and it's not translating to your heart and it's not showing through your body, if your whole life is not engaged in worship, are you truly worshiping? Right? How could you be? Like, what if you went, right? Like, let's just say, um, let's say your um, grandfather dies, right? Let's say your grandparent dies, and he's there in a casket right before you. And you looked into the casket, and you said, hmm, grandfather's not breathing? Brain activity is not, is, 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 seems to have stopped? Conclusion? He's dead. Well, well, and you kind of leave. What if you just went to a funeral, and that's all you said? You see, that's not honoring the life of your relative any more than, than, than sometimes what we do on Sunday mornings. Because if you're not emotionally, uh, physically, mentally, spiritually devastated by the casket, when you're not weeping because, 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 because the memories are flooding into your mind and into your hearts and your body can't do nothing but just fall before your grandfather's life, right? you haven't really dealt with the reality of death and loss at that moment. You've detached yourself with the reality, from the reality of death, and there's no true worship of the life of your grandfather. See, worship, you should love with everything. Everything should be attached when it comes to our worship with God. Now, let's talk about this. Um, the alabaster jar, right? The, the song's written about this. It's, it's, it's a very key point. Now, the alabaster jar was a small, skinny flask, and, and we know that it is because, you know, architect, uh, the, um, in, in, in um, um, archaeology, sorry, archaeology, um, you know, they, they found these jars, right? Whole intact, right? These jars out in when they were digging. Um, and what they saw was that a lot of these jars, actually in all these jars, the, the opening was so narrow um, that, that you, you that even though there's liquid inside, you couldn't pour the liquid out. And so, in fact, um, it was thin enough that it wouldn't spill over the liquid, but at least wide enough so that the vapors of, of the perfume, whatever inside, would kind of come out. And these women, they would purchase these, and they would wear them around the necks. Now, commentators, you know, and, and you'll see this everywhere, that they'll tell you that these little flasks were really expensive. You know, number one, they, you know, they were, they were made of alabaster, a very expensive, um, you know, uh, uh, stone that was imported from far away. And, and, these, and, and the nard, the perfume that was inside, was very expensive. Um, um, they were kind of like, um, you know, like, you know, Rolex watches, Omega watches, or, you know, like, you know, like nice shoes that guys wear. These were expensive things that only the wealthiest of people wore. Now, why were they so expensive? You know, it's because, because, you know, we put value, our culture places high value on things that really, you know, at least sinfully move us. So, for example, in our culture, we are led first with our eyes. The first thing we do is that, you know, we, we look at people. We look at their hairstyle. We look at what they're wearing. We look to see the watch on their wrist. We look at see the, the kind of shoe, the kind of suit that they're wearing. We're a very um, a sight-based culture. You know, we like to see, and then, and then and, you know, sinfully, then we're also a very touchy-feely culture, right? This this is what we do in our culture. But back then, a woman's desirability was not by her excessive, you know, her accessories, right? She didn't, she didn't wear bags. She didn't wear nice, you know, tight-fitting clothes. Primarily in that culture, women were attracted because of their aroma, their scent. 
You have to think that this is the desert. They, their, their bodies were beaten down by the desert sun. And so they, they were willing to pay large amounts of money to mask the bodily odors that, that, that often came from you know, all the, the, the different crevices of their body. Um, and, and, so, and, so, and so what we see is that what this woman does next, you know, knowing this fact, knowing how expensive this alabaster jar is, Knowing that what she does next speaks volumes of the kind of worship that God really is seeking today. See, we miss this in the reading, but in order to understand how she got the ointment out, is that she couldn't just pour it out, right? Remember that, that, that the hole is too small. So what she had to do is that she had to break the neck of this, of this, of this alabaster jar, making the flask completely useless at this point. Now, in, in, in a posting that I saw regarding this passage, there's a, a woman, an Asian woman, that says this. If she was truly a prostitute, she could have used the perfume for her vocational activities. You guys know what that means, right? Um, to entice her customers, she could have used it on herself. This is something that she did um, to show that she was better or, or more worth um, than other people in, in, in her time. Now, meaning that what she did that day wasn't about money. Jesus is not saying that, that, that oh, she, she offered a lot of money before me, right? And this is what, no, this is not the past, the point. She's not taking a Birkin bag, right? And, and, and you women know what, what that is, right? A Birkin bag, right? An Hermes Birkin bag. She's not taking a bag and saying, Jesus, I love you, and takes a knife and starts ripping the Birkin bag, right, in little pieces, right? That's not what she's saying. She's not flaunting that, Jesus, you are worth more than my, than my Omega watch, right, breaking. You are worth more than the 7 Series, smashing the windows in. This is not what she's saying. She's not making a financial sacrifice to God. The alabaster jar um, wasn't just a status symbol of how successful she is in her profession. No, the alabaster jar was her life. This is what made her attractive, uh, desirable in a sea of other prostitutes. And the contents, what was inside of the jar, gave her the only desirability, the only influence that she had over men. And now, because she cracked it in half, now all of that was gone. It's, it's like this person, right? It's like, a, it's like someone who wants to be an athlete, right? And they, and they train all their life. They focus all their attention on training, you know, spring, summer, you know, fall, winter, all these things. And, 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 and they don't spend any time with school, so they have no degree. And they drop out of school, and they get drafted, and, you know, let's say, you know, basketball, you know, out of, right out of high school. And, and, and it's like someone who, in the very first game of the season, has a career-ending injury. This that knee, that whatever they broke, that's their life. That's who they are. What does an athlete have if he doesn't have a healthy body? And what did this woman have if she didn't have her perfume? Now, I don't agree with commentaries and pastors when they kind of reduce this to a, a financial sacrifice. Um, but to me, this is what she's doing when, when she breaks the jar. Two things. Number one, she's renouncing her past. All the things, the way she manipulated men, she sold her body, and, 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 and the way that her reputation, her past, she's renouncing the past patterns of her life when she breaks this before Jesus, right? Everything that she gained in this world, the financial success, the reputation, whatever it may be, she's renouncing everything in the past, but the same time she's forfeiting her her the future security why because this is what will make her prosperous in the future this is her identity as a prostitute and so in this one single act as she breaks this in front of jesus christ she's literally saying you know as, as we sing the song you know all that i am all that i have i lay them down before you O lord so Jesus, as if you say who you say that you are, if, if that is who you are, then there is nothing, nothing in my life will ever be the same. That's what's happening at this moment. Now, um, the last point, 
And a quick one on the parable. Now, Jesus, he, he, he turns to Simon, and he, said, he gives him a parable, right? But Simon's a thinker, so you give thinkers parables, stories to think about, to chew about. He says that there are two debtors um, in this story. There's one with 500 denarii debt, which was uh, about a year and a half worth of debt. So if the average, let's say you make like $80,000, it's $120,000 debt. There was someone with about 50 denarii um, debt, so you could tell it's about maybe $12,000 debt or whatever it may be. The mistake then would be to, and this is what Simon, Simon was probably doing, the mistake would be to focus on the particulars of the, of the passage rather than the point, right? There's a point that Jesus is driving through. And the point is that a debt is a debt is a debt. If Pastor DL owed me a dollar, but he didn't have a dollar in his pocket, he'd be a debtor to me, right? It didn't matter if it's a dollar or a thousand or a million dollars. A debt is a debt is a debt. So, so let me ask, which person is more in trouble? If, if, if I'm, so, so, so I can't really swim, right? So, so if, if, if you threw me, right, into the lake, and, and I'm in a lake of 50 feet of water, and I'm drowning in a 50 feet of water, am I, am I more dead or more alive than if someone threw me in a 500 feet lake, right? And I'm, and I'm swimming there, right? Where am I more dead? The point is, I'm still dead. I'm equally dying in both lakes because I don't know how to swim, it would be ridiculous, right, for the man in the 50 feet you know, lake as he's drowning, right, to look over to the man in the 500 feet and be like, oh, phew, at least I'm not drowning in 500 feet of water, right? right? That, I mean, I mean that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty dumb, foolish, right? At the same time, right, that if there's a person in 500 feet, right, um, wishing, oh, my goodness, I wish I was drowning only in 50 feet of water, right? It makes no sense, right, because they're both going to die at the very end. A debt is a debt is a debt. And the point that Jesus Christ is making with this parable is that we are all here standing right now. And there is a debt that we have to pay, but we cannot. And if that was the end of the parable, if Jesus said the end, well, church, thank you. Thank you for your time. Go back home. Hope you get something to eat. I'll see you in May. But Jesus doesn't end the story that way. He goes on and he says this. Therefore, I tell you, and he's talking to Simon, even with his back towards Simon, he's talking to the woman, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And he makes this connection. He who is forgiven little, loves little. And just like that, he makes, he, he flips this from a judicial judgment, right, against all people, that you guys are all in debt, and you guys cannot pay that back. He flips it, and he says, but this is the fuel for worship. Simon, he knew about religion. He knew about sacrifice. He knew about the temple. He knew about the law. He knew about a lot of different things. But this woman, she only knew about her debt. And Jesus says, to the degree that you understand the debt that you have before God, that will drive the passions of your worship. How? Because what we'll see later on, you know, as, as, as Pastor D.L. then drives towards, you know, um, you know, Easter, is that we'll not only see that, that Jesus pays for this woman's enormous debt on the cross, but that he pays for the collective debts of all those, past and future, for those who put their faith and life in Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, let me end with this one point, and, and, and may this point help you in your worship as you go towards Easter. Why did Jesus have to suffer the way he did for us on the cross, right? Have you ever thought about that? Why did Jesus have to suffer the way he, that he did on the cross? Because let's be honest, like, if, 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 if that was me, if I saw Jesus dying for my sins, right, backed, whipped, 
whipped so many times that his flesh would have ripped open, exposing the muscles and the blood all there. Um, having a crown of thorns, seven inch long, nailed into your head, like piercing through the skulls, maybe into his eyeball. Nails pierced through both my hands and both my legs. The first question that I would have asked if I saw it that day is, God, why? Why is this all even necessary, right? Isn't it enough to just take a bullet and shoot Jesus Christ in the head and say he died for my sins? Because think about it, right? Because if this is what God required to pay the, the, the huge debt that I have, I would think that God is a cruel God, that he makes people suffer for my sake, that he's a vicious, a punishing, and unloving God. I mean, would you not? Would you, if you were there that day and, and they were whipping Jesus and nailing Jesus and, and kicking and all these things and, and someone said to you, this is because of you, would you not say that, that God is cruel? Couldn't they just have killed Jesus simply and gone over with if all he acquired was, my, was his death? But the more that I thought about this, the more I thought about my sins, it drove me to turn my eyes, you know, not from the cross, but to the cross and to understand what, what, what this meant to me. Because I began to see that the cross was not just an appeasement of this bloodthirsty monster in heaven, right? A God who just looks down and just punishes people because of the basis of their sins. But I began to see that this is, a this is the revelation of a merciful God. And this image dri drives me to worship. Why? Because it is on this cross that God decided that he would rather die for his enemies than to kill them. That he would rather die for me than to put me on that place. That on the cross that we discover a God who would take the enormity of our debt, all the debt of our sin, and he exchanged it. He exchanged it for complete forgiveness. And when I, when I started looking at the enormity of my sins and, 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 and the huge that I had before God and the enormity of his forgiveness to do something like this, I finally understood that the cross wasn't just that, that God had to inflict Jesus with this much pain in order to forgive me, but rather this is the extent of my Jesus, what he was willing to endure so that I could be forgiven here today. Right? This is what it means. That, that it, it's not, the cross is not just God saying that, hey, this is what your sin looks like. Pop, and he starts beating up Jesus Christ on the cross. But that image is not just how bad my sins are, but how great my God is. That he's willing to endure all of this for someone with as huge of a debt as I have today. And this is the great exchange. That when Jesus cries out on the cross, you know, my God, my God, why forsake me? And he cries out, it is finished that those words also mean that it is paid in full, that he released me, he releases you, every single person in this room, from the great debt of sins that we owe to him that day. And for him to offer this great exchange, me for him, him for me, that he had to become personal, that, that Jesus Christ couldn't do this on, on, on the thrones of heavens, looking down and just parting us for our sins. Would that move you to worship him? No. My Jesus became personal. My Jesus put on flesh. My Jesus understood what I went through. My Jesus went, was tempted in the same way that I was tempted. My Jesus had his followers leave him. My Jesus had all. My Jesus became personal for me. And this to me, is, is, is what I uh, understand about Jesus, that he personally endured the wrath of God, not just in concept, but physically, emotionally, and spiritually. 
What if we had a, a Simon Savior? What if we had a, a Savior that just looks upon heaven and be like, uh, you know, um, you, know you, you, you did this much sin, you know, just do this and, and it'll be okay. Right? What if we just had a Simon Savior? Then we wouldn't have the cross. We wouldn't have the nails. We wouldn't have the, the crown of thorns. And we wouldn't have him. This is what Easter is about. We have a personal Savior. We have a Savior that, 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 that worshipped our God by coming in human flesh and in this act of obedience, right, and with tears and all these things and with blood and sweat, he showed us what worship really looks like. We have a personal Savior, not a Simon Savior. And this, I believe, is what the woman understood that day. That when she was looking at the feet of Jesus and she was anointing the feet, that she was anointing the feet in whom the nails would be driven through. This is my Jesus. This is not Simon's Jesus. This is my Jesus. And this is your Jesus today. May that encourage you and in this Lenten season, whatever you've given up for God, know that, that he will increase whatever you've given up a million fold when you see him once again. May this be the power to drive you to worship today. Let's pray. Can we just um, spend some time, you know, thinking about the debt? I get it. You know, a lot of us today, we don't like to think of ourselves as bad people. Because why? We do a lot of good things. You know, a few minutes ago, I was praising this church for how good it was. But our goodness doesn't drive us to worship. It is our debt, the realization of the magnitude of our debt that drives us, that fuels us to worship him. Maybe if you felt like you haven't felt the presence, that you haven't felt the, you know, the hands, you know, we have to say, you know, the hands or the, the presence of Jesus, whatever it may be, if you haven't felt that in your life, if you haven't felt the personal savior in your life recently, it may be because you have reduced your debt to a small thing that is payable, that you think that with good works you can pay off the debt that you have before God, and you owe God nothing. But what drives me to worship every Sunday is to know that I've broken the heart of, this, of my Father. And in my sin, I have pushed away the person who became personal to me. My God who would come in human flesh, and he would show the full extent of what he was willing to go through to pay my debt. This is what drives me to worship, that I am a sinner, and I am the worst of all sinners. And my heart overflows because I have a personal Savior. Can we spend some time acknowledging the debt that we have before God? We don't like to do it. It's messy. It's dirty. I get it. And God still loves you nonetheless. But can we think about our debt? Think about this week. Think about how we've, maybe we didn't, pursue him as much as we should have maybe we've made decisions to go the other way you know maybe we've we put our we've been more passionate about our children more passionate about our jobs more passionate about basketball more than we were passionate about our savior whatever it may be in your life and i don't know what they are but the magnitude when you realize that your debt is not payable it drives you to weep to hug 
to lay down your hair and to anoint the feet of Jesus. I spent some time in prayer meditating upon that right now. God gives us a particular way to love Him. You know, my, you know, my wife tells me all the time, you know, on Valentine's Day, don't bring me chocolates, don't bring me flowers, I don't want them, bring me a gift card. That's what my wife says. Now, what if I brought her chocolate and flowers because this is what I thought that she wanted? You know, you know my wife actually made me return earrings for her because she didn't want it. Because why? Even as humans, we have a way that we want to be worshipped. How so much more our God, that when He says to love me with your strength, with your mind, your soul, with your intellects, with your heart, with everything in your life, that to be released from, you know, to not look at the person next to you, but just to focus on me. And if I am that Savior, if I am that God who has loved you, and you are to love me back with your whole heart, with your whole body, with, to think about the words on the screen, to think about the words on the page, and to weep because of what I've done for you. If this is what God says, who are we to say, no, God, I want to worship you this way? It doesn't work like that. Even with human beings, how much more so with God? So let's pray right now and say, God, may my thoughts, may my eyes, may my lips, may my heart, May my hands, may my feet, may my body, may the person next to me, may everything around me, all that I am, all that um, you are, may that be one. May I give you an offering, a worship that is, that, that is pleasing to you. Not what I, I can give to you, but what is pleasing to you. For you have said in all throughout the pages of, pages of Scripture that this is how you want me to worship you. Let me not bring a different gospel today, but let me bring your words how you want so that I may be pleasing to you. So let's pray this in our lives right now, that God would change our hearts, that God would be personal to us, that, that we would be less like Simon and more like this woman, and that we would see the personal Savior, the Savior who put on flesh, who put on the ability to feel pain and hurt, who was 
who was denied, who was betrayed, who had all of his friends leave him that day on Easter, on, on, on Good Friday, I'm sorry, that who had all these things done to him and who can say to us that I understand you because I went through these things too. Let's worship that personal God. We don't have a Simon God. We don't have a Simon Savior. We have a personal Savior. And He wants to meet you today. So if this is your first time at church and you don't really know who this Jesus is, just pray a simple prayer. Jesus, I want this personal Savior in my heart. I want to know this, this same Savior that this woman gave up her identity, gave up all that she was. If this is the Jesus that she did all this for, I want to know the Savior in my life too. And all it takes is a simple prayer to confess with your mouth and to trust in your heart that Jesus is your Lord. And the gentleness that Jesus had that day, that same Jesus is promised to you as well. Let's just pray for this Jesus in our hearts. And as the praise team leads us and guides us into worship, let not our worship be the same that we brought today, but let the worship and how God prescribes it to us, may that change us as we leave this room. Let's pray, church. to us that you did not sit on heaven's throne and just command forgiveness to those who are morally perfect to those who bring offerings to those who break down themselves and worship you a particular way no i worship and i thank you that you came down off of your heavenly throne and that you put on flesh and you met me here on earth that you suffered and you were punished for my sake alone. That it wasn't because you are a bloodthirsty God, but God, because you wanted to show the full extent of your love towards us. That this is what you were willing to do, to die for me, an enemy, so that as you resurrected, then I became your brother, and I became a child of God. That our God would die for us enemies rather than punish them. May this truth now as we take it into our minds, let it translate into our hearts, let the alpha be from our bodies, and as it may come out from the guts into our mouths and we sing praises to you. We thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this church and the mission. And may they do great things in Orlando. God, this is a beautiful church.